week of December 12th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 565, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the newsmaking headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. How are you, Sperling? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm just back from New York. The Christmas is in, like, it's a week from Saturday. Good Lord. It's yes, coming okay. fast. It's coming. It's next week. Next week, okay. when we do our what show next week, it will be the week of Christmas. The year is hurtling to a finish. What were you doing in New York? What was I doing in New York? Oh, wait. Actually, next Monday, I will not be able to record, I don't think. Oh. Can I you do it Tuesday or Sunday? Uh, or what, what are you doing? Sunday. Sunday, I can do Sunday. Okay, we'll do an early one. Where are you going? I am going to the, the in-laws. Well, very nice. Very lovely. Um, that's, 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 I thought maybe you were filing to run for a political office in the tri-state region. Uh, I know Dr. Oz is running for the Pennsylvania Senate seat. Correct. Yeah. Causing no end of, uh, you know, strife for, for Oprah, I'm sure. Oh, well, they're not happy, uh, but he's ending his show. So the good news is that his show is coming to an end. <laughs> so if there's, a, <laughs> if there's a silver lining to him running for the Pennsylvania Senate seat, uh, it's the fact that his show, his snake oil salesman show, will be off the air for good, hopefully forever. Uh, of course, if he wins, that would be disaster, almost as bad as Max Verstappen winning the Formula One this week. That was a nightmare, too. But don't get me oh started my gosh, on Formula won. One. Okay. Oh, it was, was an awful, it. yeah. Oof. Yeah, well, no, it you was... Know, I, uh, you know, speaking of, of shows that are ending, I, I, I saw a bunch of shows that are now beginning again. So I went to see three Broadway shows. Wow. Uh, I'm going to start with maybe the one that wasn't so great and just tell you, you don't need to see the girl from the North Country at all. Oh, yeah. Well, it's closing soon, too. Yeah. No. OK. All right. That's the show based on Dylan's songs. OK. What was the second show? Yeah. You know what it proved? Bob Dylan can write a heck of a song. You know what it also proved? Bob Dylan should sing them without any storyline in between. Uh, the next one I saw was The Six, or yeah, I guess it's The Six. Or about six. Henry VIII's, or it's just Six. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Six, the musical. And it was fun, is what you'll say. Yeah, it was fun. It, it's just a fun, it may as well just be a rock concert. Right, but there you go. It's cheap, and it's been, it's been a hit all over the world about the wives of Henry VIII. And what was the big one? Did you see American Utopia? I did see American you Utopia. Bastard, you didn't invite me. How was it? It was, uh, you, well, I, I, this was the part where I was going to play that uh, just a couple weeks ago. You, you told me that story about how you saw LaBelle and then, mm -hmm. and then of and course. how amazing it was. And you're like, I don't, don't ask. Don't, just don't ask how good it was. <laughs> yeah. Just don't. Yeah. It was, it was not only, it was just amazing. I mean, I saw the same show or a portion of the same show at Coachella. At Coachella it was yeah. the first public performance of it and people are like what's he doing with that brain that that brain thing and and why is everybody wearing a gray suit why are they all barefoot and it was at the time people thought well that was a very unique presentation for you said Coachella. it was awesome you said it was even better than beyonce at the time you said it was tremendous you thought it was a great performance yes and, and it was just as good and different different for sure uh because of course everybody's seated but, uh, you know, David Byrne, when he, he first starts singing, you're just like, how is it that this guy can pull off singing at his age so well? I mean, he's just so good. And then we were standing outside the theater for like 10 minutes, right? Uh, and Came out on his bike and left. <laughs> yes. How did you oh, know? Because really? he always bikes around New York City. Yeah. Right. You see him yeah. all the time. 
Yeah, he just came out on his bicycle and he had like six bodyguards with him. Nobody was going to chase him. (laughs) He's 69 years old. Good good job. Good job. Yay. You know, I can tell you that when Hugh Jackman was doing The Boy from Oz on Broadway, he came out. Locked off. You can't even get, get in on the street. Yeah. I well, stayed across the street in a hotel during that time period at the Paramount Hotel, and I could always tell when he was leaving because my, the hotel entrance was across the street from the theater exit, mm-hmm. the stage exit, and he would come out and you'd hear screams. I mean, <laughs> just screams and huge. I was like, oh, Hugh must be done for the night because <laughs> 11.30, he must be going home. Well, I'm glad to know American Utopia was fun. And overall, everybody wore masks. You felt really safe. You, they checked your COVID uh, status. I mean, your, your vaccination status and all that. You know, I have to say, totally impressed. With New York in general, on the subway, everybody wearing masks. You go Great. in to buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks. You're only going in for a minute and a half. Order, grab the cup of coffee, out the door. You know what they ask you for? Can I see your ID and vaccination certificate, please? Cool. Everywhere you went, they asked for it. And going into these theaters, a line, you got checked. There was a specific app for it, and it totally worked. Everybody was masked up. And during intermission, uh, they would come up and, you know, you'd see these big signs, mask up, please, mask up, please. And everybody, everybody uh, actually cooperated. Great. Yeah. And, and did they want to know that you had a booster or was that not required yet? That wasn't required. No, you okay. just had to actually be vaccinated. Fully vaccinated. That's great. And that made you feel safe and want to go to the theater and feel safe doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because I, 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 to- I, I, I wouldn't want to go in London right now, but I would be happy to go in New York. I'm not dying to spend a ton of you know, weeks on end at the theater, but I want to see American Utopia. I'm hoping to do it before it closes in March. But we've got business to do. What are we going to talk about this week on the show? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are dancing in the streets. I want to live in America. Yeah, we're dancing over the release of West Side Story, a big flashy musical from director Steven Spielberg. Never been made before. Oh, wait, no, actually, let me check my It has been made before. Uh, anyway, unfortunately, not many other people are dancing in the streets over it because it's had a very modest start. Spider-Man, do me a favor. Uh, there may, may be no way home, but can you actually make your way to the box office and rescue it? That would be great. Uh, Award season continues with both the American Film Institute and the European Awards weighing in on their favorites. Plus not one, but two wildly odd reboots. Plus, I think we have somewhere in here, we have some Golden Globes news. I could be wrong about that. But on Inside Baseball, we've got our friend Patrick Vonsakovsky, actually, my partner in crime over at Celluloid Junkie. He'll be joining us. And yes, you're seeing synergy in action there. Patrick will talk with us about COVID restrictions that unfairly target movie theaters and a new study that highlights which moviegoers are reluctant to return to cinemas and how we can reach them. I believe by phone is the answer to that question, by phone or email. Uh, plus, we'll shine a light on LED movie screens and whether they're the future everywhere or just in China. And I just got that. I read that three times during rehearsal and I yeah. didn't get that you're saying LED, shine a light on LED because LEDs are lights. I just got that. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. And Disney is very excited. As anticipated, they have the number one movie in the world. They also, unfortunately, it's not the right movie. They have the number one movie in North America. And that is West Side Story. 
but just barely. It just barely beat out Encanto, the Disney animated film, which is indeed the number one movie around the world. Encanto made $36 million worldwide. It's at $150 million and counting. Will adults turn out for the movies? They are turning out for some of them. House of Gucci is doing well. That made another $26 million. It's at $93 million worldwide and showing great legs. Way to go, Lady Gaga. In China, we have the adventure film Schemes and Antiques. That made another $26 million. A great hold. It doubled what it made last week. It's now at $52 million worldwide. Ghostbusters Afterlife is showing to have some legs. Um, it could get to triple of where it was at. I think it could triple. Its budget was about $75 million, which means it needs about $225 million. Well, it made $20 million this week. It's at $165 million worldwide. It's going to get close. So that's great to see. Another it's a great movie. Story. It's, it's, well, it's a fun yeah. movie. It's a lot of yeah. fun. Yeah, I'd like to see it. I haven't seen it yet. Be Somebody back in China. That's a period mystery. That made another $15 million. I don't know the budget. Uh, it's at $132 million worldwide. If you knew the budget, tell us. Yes, you can write to us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call us. Leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Of course, we're on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. And we are also on Facebook. Facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. And right, now we're on the worldwide charts. The sixth film on the worldwide chart is West Side Story. It's not important to be at number one on the worldwide charts because you're not necessarily opening up in every territory all at once. West Side Story is only opened up in a few territories, including North America, where it certainly hoped to do a lot better. Worldwide, it only made $15 million on its opening week. In North America, it made $10.5 million, a, a very poor showing, despite glowing reviews, not from me, and uh, strong audience scores. It barely beat out Encanto. Uh, is it going to have legs? I would guess not, because people just aren't that interested in the movie. Will word of mouth be so good that people will start to flock to it? I don't think so. Certainly not in North America, but we'll have to see. Those who want to see movies succeed will cross their fingers. But $15 million worldwide for a movie that cost $100 million, we're already seeing all sorts of a buzz about, well, why did it happen? <laughs> it's like, it did get good reviews. It is getting good audience scores. I thought it was boring, but, you know, one explanation is, well, it's not, you know, it's inherently flawed because it's cultural appropriation. It's like, well, no, half the movie is about an Irish gang. So, you know, they're white. <laughs> it's like, who's supposed to write it? Someone who's half Irish and half Puerto Rican? Whatever serious concerns you have about the movie's authenticity, the fact that 60, 70 years ago it was written by a couple of white guys does not mean it can't be authentic and believable and entertaining to people today. But not a good launch. I doubt it's going to be a good success story unless it gets saved by Oscar. Is that going to happen? Or will the bad box office harm it? Well, and, and let me just point out, do you want me to, to go into this now or, or at the end of uh, the box office segment? I can kind of go into a couple of reasons why it may not be doing as well as, as at least from a business standpoint. Uh, if, if you want, right. I could do that now. Well, we'll wrap later. up the other movies. West Side Story made $15 million. Eternals is about to hit $400 million worldwide. That made another $11 million. Clifford the Big Red Dog is available on Paramount+, Plus, uh, but it's still chugging along at the theaters. It made $11 million. It might have done a lot more if it was an exclusive. Venom, Let There Be Carnage, is about to hit $500 million worldwide. A great success for director Andy Serkis. 
No Time to Die, thanks to Sperling, is at $771 million worldwide. Dune is trying to claw its way to $400 million. It's going to get there, but it's not going to be easy. It's slowing down for sure. We have one big new movie, or one modest new movie, and that's Le Touche 4. I should have looked up how to spell the family name, but this is the fourth in a series of French lowbrow comedy about this semi-unemployed working-class family. It's sort of like married with children, but less funny. <laughs> um, this is the fourth film in the series. It opened to $5 million. And probably the most interesting film on the list is that Fathom event uh, concert sort of thing. It's Christmas with the Chosen, The Messengers. The TV series is The Chosen, a TV series about Jesus. Uh, this is a Christmas special filmed on the set. They sort of retell the nativity, and they have big bands popping in to sing songs. So it's the big sort of concert event. It's a holiday-themed show. They keep extending the dates of when it's going to air because it's doing well. It made $4 million last week. It's at $13 million and counting. A big success story for a fan-funded TV series, holiday special airing as a Fathom event. That's an odd, unusual thing, and it's making money. So that's cool to see. Um, you know, we've got in limited release, Red Rocket got off to a good start. That's the Sundance film, I think, right? No, nope, uh, Cannes film. It was, uh, oh, it was at Cannes, was it? I beg your pardon. And Sean Baker. That's right. And Licorice Pizza is still doing great business at four theaters. I noticed some outlets go back and forth. Some say per theater average. Others say per screen average. Some mix them up. Like for some movies, they're referencing the per screen average. And for other movies, they're referencing the per theater average. Because obviously at a theater... A movie like Licorice Pizza could be playing on six screens. And so Correct. they're just adding it all up. So that's getting very confusing to me. I'm like, you got to stick to one formula. If you're going to, oh, everybody switch to per theater average, you got to stop saying per screen and add it up so that they're com comparable. We'll never be able to compare them to the past, but at least we'd be consistent today when we're talking about Red Rocket versus Licorice Pizza. We should not have two different formula for how we describe how successful they are in limited release. You've got to pick a standard and stick to it. And Universal, speaking of a standard, they're saying most of their films will get a 45-day window. I agree. We've been saying it for a long time. 45 days makes sense. 90 days was too long for most. A 45-day window is when most movies will have made most of their money. If you've got some phenomenon with legs, you can keep it in theaters longer. There's no, you don't have to rush it to streaming, but 45 days is a great agreement for studios and exhibitors and streamers to all get together and say, hey, look, 45 days after a movie opens, that's pretty darn quick. Any advertising you do will still benefit the movie when it comes to the streamer, but it gives theaters enough chance to make their money. Everybody should be happy with that. And they're saying that's going to be for most movies, except for event picks, like the next Christopher Nolan film and a new Minions film and a new Jurassic World pick. So yeah. Those actually will probably play out sooner than 45 days. So, but nonetheless, that makes sense that they want to make those even more special. But well, and those, big, that's an ex exclusive theatrical window. That's uh, right. I can tell you that, you know, I went to see, as you kind of alluded to, No Time to Die. I saw it, uh, just, you know, recently. So that was well past its 45 day window. Yeah. So some facts about West Side Story, which is the big story of the week. The biggest percentage of ticket buyers for people like me, people who are 55 and over. That was 26%. I went to see it Saturday night, 9 p.m., Birmingham, Alabama, about seven people in the theater. More than half of the audience who bought tickets were over 35. Um, it opened to 10.5 million in the Heights, which was available on Netflix, opened to 11.5 million. 
That's how bad it did. And a third of the grosses came from IMAX and premium large format. Okay, so a couple things here. One, uh, this is showing you that the way you release a movie is important. Okay, and when picking your date is also important. So the exhibitors I was talking to before West Side Story opened were saying, look, this movie is not going to open. And it has nothing to do with the fact that, uh, you know, it's getting great reviews and it, it looks amazing. And, and, and uh, you know, the, some exhibitors who had seen it said it's really good. Uh, they just said part of the problem is that Disney, which now owns Fox, obviously, uh, they own that they have three movies coming out. And they have, of course, Encanto already in theaters. They have West Side Story. But Encanto doesn't movie. compete with Encanto. West Side Story and Encanto don't seem to really be competitors, are they? No, no, no. But they have other movies to open. They can't just open all Disney films. They have to open Spider-Man, which, you know, they're going to need screens for. And they said what Disney was asking for was a three-week minimum run for West Side Story, which would then bleed right into the new year, uh, straight through the holidays into January. Well, they also have the Kingsman coming. So they were literally boxing themselves out. As a studio, they were boxing themselves out. Remember, not every cinema has 20 screens or 12 screens. So some of these cinemas and a majority of these cinemas that only have five to eight screens can't do that. They can't say, we'll play a film for three weeks in a town that has 50,000 people. They'll take it the second week and play it for two weeks, or they'll take it for one week and then it'll be gone. But they can't, they can't dedicate three weeks. So a lot of people didn't book West Side Story. But it has enough capacity to be making more money. The problem is that it's not Absolutely. on enough screens. No, I'm just saying that is one reason why it's not playing everywhere. But you're saying they should have opened up in Thanksgiving or before Thanksgiving? Correct. Yeah, I think that they should have opened it up or, you know, done a very soft launch now and then opened it up in January or February. All I know is they've got like all the trailers I saw seem to be for action-y guy movies opening up in February. Is February going to be the biggest movie month ever or are they all going to have to move? You have Jackass Forever, you have Moonfall, a Roland Emmerich, you know, disaster flick. You have... Uh, um, uh, Black Light with Liam Neeson action film. You've got the ambulance uh, action film where they're robbing a bank with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. You've got Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg and Uncharted. It's like all these huge, big action-y movies are taking place in February. That's because they're just desperate for a release date, right? I mean, some of them got to move. Correct. And they're also trying to get in before the Batman, March 4th. Uh-huh. Well, get in in May. You know, why why do you gotta get in before March? Yeah. You could you could get in after March. But yeah, so there's always a backlog of movies. They took over 20th Century Fox. And uh I, I don't know if there was a better way to release the movie. It was delayed, of course, over a year by the COVID. So it was supposed to open a long time ago. So that hasn't helped anybody out. Everybody's trying to figure all this out when movies are finally able to open up. They don't want to open them up too soon when people aren't ready to go, but they don't want to wait too late. It ain't easy. So I don't know that they made a disastrous choice. I'm not sure how many good options they had. Do you think that there is um, something to be said about Ansel Elgort? He got into a bit of a you know sexual misconduct kerfuffle this well, time last year. Not, not kerfuffle. A woman said he raped her. So let's not call it a kerfuffle. 
She said he attacked her and raped her. Um, it's the only person to come forward. I don't. I believe one other person said he was inappropriate, or a few others, but it hasn't. I don't know. I don't believe there's any legal action happening. I don't think that had the slightest bit of impact on the movie. I don't think he's a, a, a big star that draws people in, and I don't think teenage girls have said I don't want to see an Ansel Elgort movie either. So. I don't think it made any difference either way. The problem is that he was so bad in the movie. But of course, the guy in the original West Side Story was the big, the, the male lead was also an empty vessel that really didn't you know affect the movie otherwise. But I don't think it had a, a single thing to do with it. I don't think most people even realized that that there was an allegation uh, by one person claiming sexual assault. Uh, nobody else has come forward claiming sexual assault. It doesn't mean that person's not telling the truth. But, you know, when you have a cascading number of people coming forward, that's when it becomes something that can happen in the court of public opinion as opposed to in legal proceedings. But I don't think most people even realize that happened. I'd forgotten about it, frankly, until I was reminded of it recently. But nobody stayed away from West Side Story because of that. They stayed away because they just didn't care. But okay. I care about this. There's two weird remakes and reboots. Most remakes and reboots, eh, sometimes they make sense. Other times I'm like, really? A reboot of Six Feet Under, the, the, the series about morticians. Does that show need a reboot? Do we need to see what those people are up to today? That just seems bizarre to me. What do you think? Yeah, you I don't agree. care. I mean, I don't well, care, I mean, yeah. the, the big thing is the show had one of the most acclaimed endings of all time, the perfect ending. And without spoiling the show, it's really an ending. And, you know, it's about morticians. So, you know, so it was like the idea of rebooting that show now after the perfect ending literally makes no sense. But anything's possible, I guess. On the other hand, some things I think, why wasn't that rebooted long ago? They're doing a UK version of Saturday Night Live. They are rebranding, you know, they're going to do Saturday Night Live in the UK. To which I say, why did that take 35 years? If you're going to extend the brand, why the heck did it take you so long? You can do Saturday Night Live all over the world. Sure. Why not? But why now? <laughs> it just seems a little bizarre to me. You have nothing yeah. to say. You don't care. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that I was surprised it took so long, as you said. Yeah, that's a weird. I mean, I'm sure every young stand up comic and actor is dying to be on it. Why not? Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, but speaking of social justice and sexual misconduct and stuff, uh, we should clarify a couple of stories that have been ongoing. Director Luc Besson is not facing a legal trial over an allegation of rape that he faced. And since we mentioned when the allegation came up, it's only fair to mention it's not moving forward in legal proceedings. Uh, uh, alternatively, actor Jesse Smollett of Empire, the TV show Empire, was found guilty of arranging a fake racist and homophobic attack on himself. They are, of course, appealing, but uh, it looks like the guy was guilty of sin, so shame on him. And I'm glad he was uh, uh, that some uh, you know justice was found because that's a really bad thing to do. However, he's not going to win any awards anytime soon, but other people are. It's award season. Award season is hitting its stride, and there was a big winner at the 34th Annual European Film Awards. Who was it, Sperling? Well, I think uh, it was, uh, I think this was also nominated last year for an Oscar, Kevita Ke Saida. That's right. Where are you going, Aida? That's that Bosnian war film, right? What Correct. did it win? Yeah. It won like three big awards. Yeah, I think Best Director, Best Actress, which of course, because it, it revolves around the actress, uh, and mm -hmm. Best Film. 
Right. And a cool, interesting thing, they do have a best comedy, which was called Ninja Baby. That's a Norwegian film based on a graphic novel. But the best winner for animated film and the best winner for best documentary is the same movie. It's Flea, this Danish documentary about a man fleeing his country. And that seems to be happening all over the place. Everybody's insane. It's one of the best animated films and one of the best documentaries of the year. So that could happen at the Oscars. Will it win both of them? I don't know. But I do know that the American Film Institute named their top movies of the year. They've got a top 10 for movies. They've got a top 10 for television. They have special awards. I'm not sure what the difference is there, but it's the usual movies you'd expect. Coda, Don't Look Up, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, uh, two musicals, uh, Tick, Tick, Boom, and West Side Story. And The Tragedy of Macbeth. That's got a little award season momentum, finally. I'm looking forward to seeing that Cohen movie. It's not a Cohen Brothers movie, but a Cohen movie. But uh, And then a special award for Belfast, the TV show Squid Game, and the documentary Summer of Soul. I'm not quite sure why Belfast wasn't just in the, the overall list, but who knows? But AFI doesn't really have much of an impact on anything, but those are the movies you would expect. The Golden Globes had a haphazard kind of weird, hey, Snoop Dogg, how you doing? Sort of uh, announcement of their best dramas and best comedy and musicals. Does the Golden Globes matter when they don't have a TV show? I think that uh, only time will tell. I think we're, we're, there was an article in the LA Times actually about the Critics' Choice Awards and Joey Berlin, who is- And they're going to have, they're going to have a TV show. Right. And so they're, and they're on the same day. Uh, So the question is, what you know? Will the Golden Globes stick around once they fix all of their their diversity and and uh, organizational? I'm just issues? saying this year the Golden Globes is not going to have a TV show. They're not going to be no, in prime time. So the sele- why, it doesn't matter, or you mean it doesn't I, matter that they don't have a prime time? I'm saying their influence will be negligible because there's no showcase for all the stars to give a good speech, to get attention, to be cheerful. So there's no they're not going to have an impact because they won't be airing. Uh, we are in think, vehement agreement. Yeah, I don't think anybody ever cared what <laughs> yeah. they chose, but uh, the stars could succeed by having a good speech. Famously, Tom Hanks at the Golden Globes gave a great speech, and he was going to probably win the Oscar anyway, but everybody wanted to see that speech again. They loved it so much. Uh, so yeah, Golden Globes came out. Belfast, Coda, Dune, King Richard, and The Power of the Dog are all up for best drama. Best musical or comedy? There are three musicals in the best musical or comedy category. That doesn't happen a lot, but Cyrano, Tick, Tick, Boom, and West Side Story all got nominated for best musical. What didn't? In the Heights. <laughs> Remember when that was going to be the big film of the year? That's a, that's a shame how quickly that came and went. Is it because it was on Netflix or because it just wasn't that good? Well, it was on uh, HBO Max. HBO Max, I beg your pardon. And Don't Look Up and Licorice Pizza round up that category, round out that category. But, you know, uh, Golden Globes often did a better job picking television. And in TV, they have some stuff like Pose and The Morning Show and Succession. But they did also pick Lupin on Netflix and Squid Game on Netflix. So we'll have to see if, um, if that shows um, any uh, smarts. So certainly, they're getting people in comedy to watch Reservation Dogs and Hacks and The Great. Only Murders in the Building on Hulu and the big, the big kahuna, Ted Lasso. Whether that season two was as good as season one, I don't know. But I do know the Critics' Choice. They're going to have a TV show. They had nominations. You've heard them all mentioned already. Look at the list for Best Picture and you'll see most of the movies we've already mentioned. You, they're all the same. Best Comedy is a little different. They did highlight Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. But everything else, uh, well, and Free Guy. Nobody else mentioned Free Guy and The French Dispatch. That was curiously mixing 
uh, despite its starry cast from, say, the Golden Globes. You know, if they wanted to get a bunch of people to show up, picking the French Dispatch is a good way to do it. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, will Oscar love it? They've liked Wes Anderson in the past, but I don't, I don't know how much of an impact Critics' Choice has. I assume it's negligible. What really matters is when you get the guilds voting, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and before we move on to that, let me just uh, point out two things. One, Ninja Baby. Okay, this was the, the best comedy for in the European the, the, the Norwegian film based on a graphic novel, yes. Yes, uh, the girl's pregnant. I'm not giving anything away. It opens the movie that way. She is uh, pregnant, and uh, the baby that she draws, she's a graphic novelist, uh, is talking to her. It's just a, a really good, uh, it's a lot of fun, that movie. Uh, cool. So definitely, if you get a chance, watch that movie. And then I want to talk about Coda, because this was a movie that, out of Sundance, made $25 million. It was picked up for $25 million. It opened Sundance last year. It won Sundance. This was a fantastic movie that would have done incredibly well in the before times as a theatrical release, was picked up by Apple, was released only, well, I guess it was released in theaters, but barely, and uh, would have done much, much better in the award season, if it had been a traditional theatrical release, I hope I'm wrong. But uh, you know, right now, why, why are you saying it would have done much better? Everybody listed it as among the best films of the year. How could it do any better than be nominated for Best Picture? It could win. Well, I mean, yeah, but they haven't happened yet. Gold, the Golden <laughs> Globes, the Critics' Choice, the uh, the AFI. Everybody listed it as one of the best films of the year. So clearly, it's getting traction and attention. It was released theatrically in August of uh, 2021. Yeah, for like a week. Well, yeah. Well, that's what happens when you get on the... Yeah, it was on the internet all over the world. I don't know when it hit uh, Apple, but it was in theaters on August 13th. And you know what? Uh, you know, I guess getting picked up and getting any attention at all is a big deal. They're happy to be out there. People can go see it on Apple TV and maybe it'll win awards and that'll get more people to go to Apple TV, which is exactly what Apple wants. I get what you're doing. I see what you're doing. You want us yep. to talk about Apple TV. Okay. <laughs> Apple TV. No, it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story. Here's my question. Will the last journalist leaving Fox News turn off the lights when they leave? Lock the door. Can, you know, when you're, when you're exiting the building, just turn, turn everything off. Throw the power switch. Now, that might just be the job for Chris Wallace who announced he is leaving his show, Fox News Sunday, effective immediately. Wallace said after 18 years, he wants to tackle new challenges and made no mention of the channel's pivot to complete fantasy via Tucker Carlson. Wallace was one of the few remaining faces with any link to journalism now that Shep Smith, Shepard Smith, he's over at CNBC now, and uh, at least two major talking heads have also said they can no longer in good conscience continue to associate with the network they left uh, last month. Wallace is moving over to CNN Plus because if you're a network and you don't have a plus after your name, you may as well not exist anymore. Uh, yeah. So anyway, CNN Plus has big streaming plans, needless to say, so big deal or big whoop. Uh, it's a big deal. He, he wasn't just a, a, a big name for Fox News that gave them legitimacy. He was also a draw on Sundays and got a lot of big newsmakers there uh, at, at odds at loggerheads, I think, with some of the primetime uh, chat fest people, the talking heads who offer up opinion. But there he was. If they had any legitimacy with him and Shep Smith gone, it's, it's pretty much gone. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I mean, they should just take the news out of the uh, Fox opinion. Yeah, just call it Fox Opinion. Uh, 
you know, call, call a spade a spade. Uh, speaking of which, I'm going to call Adele. I'm going to call her Adele, actually. Good, Just good. Adele. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, she's 30. Actually, she's 31. But her album, 30, has already sold more than 1 million copies on CD digital download and vinyl. It's the first album in more than a year to do so. I can already tell that Michael's looking up whether Adele is 30 or 30. She is 33. <laughs> See? I was wrong. <laughs> I was <laughs> wrong by not, three years. I'm like, she is not 31. I'm sure of that. I love it when you riff. Uh, anyway, uh, the mo- uh, 30 by Adele uh, is the most copies uh sold i think in the well anyway it's the most copies sold this year and it's certainly most of the copies that were sold were sold in the compact disc format or as my daughter say what's a compact disc uh (laughs) so here's my question is is it a cd revival is it a music sales revival is streaming feeling the heat now that you know no and no (laughs) okay yeah you're right hold on uh this just in you're right you're right and you're right. Uh, her, you know, your, her album, Adele's album, remains at number one for the third week. And her single, Easy On Me, is at number one for the seventh week on the Hot 100. On the Cold 100, however, it's not doing too well. Uh, big Deal or Big Whoop? Uh, oh, I thought there were more stories in Big Deal. But it's, uh, it's a big whoop. Uh, she's a big star. We knew she would do well. Uh, the, 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 the fact that it's only the album in over a year to sell a million copies. That's what's really so telling how, how what streaming is just the game these days. Yeah, every once in a while you can get an album that people want to own it on vinyl or CD, but that's very rare. It tends to be for older acts. Streaming is where it's at. So stop trying to convert streams into album sales. Just tout the streaming numbers and give us a better breakdown of what they mean. Yeah, and let me tell you, there will be, uh, I'm going to bring this back up uh, when we talk uh, about Vincente Fox a little later on, but uh, there's an interesting, uh, there's something interesting about streaming, which I will get to when we talk about Vincente Fox. All right, very excited, the late Vincente Fox. Yes, well, there you go. Now you know what section that's in. Spoiler alert. Uh, In any case, the top video game awards were held last week, and the big prize winner was myself for never playing video game. I have not played a video game all year. I was locked inside, pandemic, didn't play a video game. Okay, actually, the winner was It Takes Two, a cooperative game in which a couple getting a divorce must cooperate together on solving puzzles and going on adventures. I read this description and immediately wanted to play this video game. I have no (laughs) idea why. I was like, wait, what? A couple... Wait, there's a video game about a couple getting a... I really have to pay attention to this industry a little bit more. Exactly. Now, Sting and Imagine Dragons, they sang songs. I guess, did they sing songs on the video game? They must have. Well, there's tie-ins, yes, to the movie or or TV versions or or soundtracks of the video games have lots of music in them, of course. Well, rapper Lil Dicky, he told jokes. Basketball star Paul George popped in. I see what you're saying. Say they they did it at the awards ceremony. Okay. Got it. All right. I thought maybe they were doing it uh, uh, during the video game. It takes two, which would be phenomenal. Any, no, any, this is just the ceremony we're talking okay. about. The ceremony, we're, by the way. We're trying to show that the video game ceremony is a big, splashy event where big name stars show up. There's a lot of money involved. It's big pop cultural stuff. Video games aren't where you and I are at, but it's a big business and a lot of people pay attention because there's a lot of money being made. And what they do at their ceremony is something the Oscars should try to do. Tell us what that was. 
Well, it was dominated by teasers and trailers for upcoming video games and movies like The Matrix Resurrections with Keanu Reeves, who, by the way, also on hand. Last year, the live stream on Twitch and YouTube garnered uh, more than, uh, get this, 83 million eyeballs. And no, that wasn't like two per person, so it's only 41 and a half. No, it was <laughs> 83 million people. Okay, watch this thing. So take that, Oscar. Don't even get me started on the Emmys. Anyway, uh, Microsoft's gaming division garnered lots of awards with Age Ages of Empires 4, Halo Infinite, and Forza Horizon 5. More important to the industry was the buzz for the future led by a trailer for the TV series Halo and the game Elden Ring, created by game maker, oh boy, Hidetaka uh, Miyazaki. No relation to Miyazaki. You did Hidetaka Miyazaki. Yeah, no relation to Miyazaki, the animator. Yeah, and George yeah. R. R. Martin, right? Who was too busy playing video games and not finishing that gosh darn book thing that he was working on. Anyway, big deal or big whoop? Leave him alone. It's a it's a big deal. It's a big event. Two point nine billion people. That's how many people played a video game last year. Uh, that's a lot of people. Almost half the planet. It's getting closer and closer to half the planet played a video game last year. Uh, George R. R. Martin will do a good job writing the book if he can have a healthy life where he does other things as well at the same time. So let's leave him alone. Yeah. <laughs> well, Michael, that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us right along into Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, how they affect you, if you're in China and you're listening to us, seriously, you, you got to write to us because, you know, I did not know we were being broadcast in or, or, or distributed in China. But seriously, uh, if you're in China, you're going to be watching movies on LED screens. As Patrick Von Sikowski, the editor of Celluloid Junkie, my partner in crime at Celluloid Junkie, and the editor of the Marquee Newsletter, sponsored by Dolby. Uh, Patrick, <laughs> thank you for joining us. You're going to be joining us to talk ab about, well, really a lot of things, including COVID restrictions, which are right now targeting certain businesses, specifically cinemas. Absolutely. And um, it's a patchwork really that we're looking at in terms of COVID regulations for cinemas, especially especially when we come to the um, oxymoronically named European Union, which from a you know COVID regulation perspective, it's the biggest misnomer since the Pacific War. <laughs> you know, it's almost, you know, as if every country set out to not just every country to set out to have its own approach to how you deal with um, COVID when it comes to cinema restrictions. But even within those countries, you know, there are subdivisions like Wales you know, in the UK, which is not like, part of the Europe anymore. Apparently, somehow they moved geographically. <laughs> I was reading your newsletter, The Marquee. Everybody should sign up for it. It comes from Cellular Junkie. Uh, it's coming out every week. And I really liked it. And you talked about. Uh, last week about COVID restrictions unfairly targeting cinemas. We're also going to talk about this new uh, look at trying to win back moviegoers and LED screens, which I think is an upcoming story you have. And every country is different, even in the EU. But of course, mm -hmm. COVID is different in every country. In Poland, they've just tightened up the restrictions. Cinemas are right now only able to max out at 30% of their capacity. In contrast, yeah. Romania has loosened up its restrictions because things are looking better there, I guess. And so mm -hmm. their cap is now at 50%. So we know that every country is different. Every region is different. Even the cities and states are different. But here, when you're talking about COVID restrictions, the main thing that you were talking about is that they're targeting cinemas, but they are not targeting as much in many places 
bars and restaurants and concerts, which are bigger transmitters of COVID than cinemas have ever proven to be. That's what's really unfair there. Not that they're tightening rules on cinemas, but they're not doing it for places that are known to be worse in terms of spreading COVID. That's the thing, really, if we think back to you know the previous lockdown, which feels like ages ago, but wasn't obviously, then at least everybody got treated equally. Everybody got locked down as much, whether you're a you know, restaurant or you're a cinema. But now uh, politicians realize that there isn't much of a public appetite for lockdowns. So let's target the things that people use maybe, oh, I don't know, once or twice per year, like cinemas, whereas at least in the United Kingdom, a pub if you were to you know, institute COVID passport requirement for a pub, there'd be more of an outcry. Unfortunately, the outcry isn't loud enough for cinemas, which is what happened in Wales, with the exception of this one independent cinema, which said that, no, we feel this is unfair. We're not going to check anybody's COVID pass to enter. And that resulted in endless twos and fro's with courts, injunctions, uh, locks being changed, locks being changed back. <laughs> and now finally... Uh, it looks like they're not going to be programming or keeping anything open until the end of the year. But as you said, this does highlight the fact that there seems to be a great unfairness and very little scientific uh, justification for why it is that cinemas are being singled out for harsher measures than other venues of hospitality or public leisure. So there was a study that also came out a week ago, which was by the German Institute of Fraunhofer, which is a well-respected international um, institute for various uh, practical science. And they did a study in two cinemas. They actually put, you know, crash test dummies type of um, things in cinemas to measure the output and flow of um, air. And they simulated molecules for, you know, small uh, aerosol particles. And they found that no standard ventilation does a great job of removing the COVID threat. You know, you're all sitting down, you're not talking, you're not singing, um, and you're all facing the same direction. So guess what? Cinema is a pretty safe COVID environment, definitely much safer than restaurants, pubs, bars, places where people mingle chat face-to-face -face and so on. And yet, as I pointed out, cinemas are being singled out and it doesn't seem to be very fair. And it definitely doesn't seem to be based on any scientific evidence that I've come across. Well, that's very sad because I love the band Crash Test Dummies and their song. And it's a shame to know that they've fallen so far that they're now reduced to being uh, guinea pigs for COVID tests. Sorry, Sperling, keep going. <laughs> Well, I, I was actually going to uh, quote uh, Alejandro Ramirez Magana, who uh, at uh, CinemaCon this year said that there's, and this is a quote, there's a study that I'm assuming people know of. Uh, I, it was mentioned in the Global Cinema Federation Advisory Board meeting, and, and I'm going to skip ahead here. It's a study by the International Air Quality and Health Institute in Brisbane University in Australia by Dr. Lydia Morovska. Hacks. And what she, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and what she found is that an activity that is conducted in silence, but with physical activity, like in a gym, you issue seven more times saliva particles than an activity that is in silence and without physical activity. An activity that is without physical activity, but where people talk, like in a restaurant or a cafe, people issue 14 times more saliva particles. And an activity where people actually yell, sing, or shout, like a concert or a club or a sporting event, they issue 90 times more saliva particles than an activity that is conducted in silence and without physical activity. And what he could have added there was 
and all facing the same direction. <laughs> right. So, so right. So cinemas know, are safer. And I don't think our argument is that, well, they shouldn't have any rules, just get rid of all the restrictions. Like, no, uh, other places should have those same restrictions, if not harsher ones. But certainly, I think cinemas should embrace the fact that there have been no uh, COVID outbreaks linked to a cinema anywhere in the world yet. There hasn't been one big outbreak linked to people going to a movie and say, ah, oh, look, everyone went to see Avatar 2 and they all got sick. And rather than saying, oh, we hate these rules, they should be embracing them and saying, look, this is the safest space that you can be in. You know, tell people that, you know, fight with that and say, look at this. When they're trying to reach people and get people to come back to the movies, when they want women and older people to come back to the movies, and those are the groups that are the most resistant, the best thing you can tell them is, this is the safest thing. Have you been out to dinner? That's not as safe as going to the movies. Go to the movies. And that brings us to one other story you did. It was a story on a report by the Quorum about winning back moviegoers. And they kind of said there are some people who are simply not going to come back after COVID. I, I kind of don't know if I agree with that, but do you know what their understanding or reasoning for saying that is, that there's a group that may have been lost forever to moviegoing? Yes. So this is a fascinating uh, presentation. They put out the PowerPoint for free um, online, so maybe you can link to it, called Exhibition at a Crossroad. And what they've done is they've looked at breaking up uh, current film goers and former film goers into different groups. So with the current film goers, you've got the avids and the infrequents. And these people represent about you know, 50% of uh, what they looked at. Then they had the former film goers, people who necessarily haven't been back. And this was from a survey of about two and a half thousand people. They had the reluctance, um, who are um, ones that went in the spring, but then when Delta came along, they like said, uh, no, thank you. There are the hopefuls that might have returned in the spring of this year. Um, but again, stop when Delta was going, but, you know, would like to come back. And then there are people who are likely lost um, forever. They're called the likely lost. So uh, they haven't been to the cinema since the start of the pandemic, and they're unlikely to come back again. And the problem is that these former filmgoers now account for, you know, just over half of um, everybody who was surveyed in this question. And they're looking at um, the fact that, for example, uh, women are more likely to be former filmgoers, so we need to work harder uh, to bring them back because they didn't turn up in sufficient number for films like Spencer in the Heights or West Dear Side Story. House. West Side Story this week. Yep, yep, as you know. Um, so, you know, maybe a little bit for House of Gucci did well in the UK. I gather didn't do as well in the US, probably. And then they have the people with major safety concerns. And this can be a combination of things such as price sensitivity, um, low experiential value, and safety concerns. That adds up to them just being, um, you know, former filmgoers rather than future filmgoers. And one of the other big conclusions is the fact that a vaccine mandate would be a net positive for theaters. So if and when that happens, or in other markets where it happened, we could see it boosting cinema attendance. And of course, you know, if you're going to have a crappy lobby and sort of tired, worn carpets, that's not going to entice anybody to be coming back to the cinema. So make it a better experience, reach out to people and look at, you know, upselling things through large format, although doesn't necessarily mean anything. Charge them more so. money. Yes, yes. Charge them more money. <laughs> that always well, gets impact in. But that was one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, and that's the strategy rather of squeezing existing filmgoers. So, you know, right. rather than winning back or, or persuading new filmgoers. And that's a big mistake well, because beyond COVID, there were a lot of talking points in this survey about 
ticket prices being too yes. high and something they can really control. And we've been complaining about for years. Everybody complains about it. Concession prices. They hand you a tankard of soda. Even the small is like a tankard. It's not even a joke in America. And the popcorn is huge. And it's, I went to see Dune in IMAX. The first movie I went back to, uh, other than one film where there was literally no one in the audience, I went to see Dune in IMAX. It was $18 for my popcorn and my soda. $18. That's bonkers insane. And I didn't even want that much. And it was just, and that was the small, the small popcorn and the small soda. And it was $18. That's, that's great. I'm in Alabama. I'm not in New York City. And that's just crazy. Yes, it is. Oh, there has to be, and there's got to be better offerings, more variety, but giving people choice, you know, don't just plump for the gallon of soda and, you know, the barrel of popcorn. You're right. Well, part of that is, is, uh, what they, what the exhibitors would claim is, look, you know, we sell a product that is an experience. And as a part of that, we give, we, we put something on a shelf and when somebody comes and buys it, we give a majority of the money we earn from selling it away. Like we're not actually, we're just like we a und- warehouse. We understand that. But when you want people to come back to the movies and bring your kids and get them to buy popcorn and soda, the way to do that is not to charge $18 a person for popcorn and soda. That was the small. So when you want us to come and buy, I don't I buy soda and popcorn twice a year because it's so expensive. If it was cheaper, I would buy it every time I went to the movies. And here's an idea I saw in Korea. Uh, they got this fabulous idea of, you know, you have your you know, medium-sized tub of popcorn. On the way out, as you leave, you can pay another buck and a half, and you get a free refill, and you get a lid on it. So you can take it home, and you yeah. can experience some of this so much. Because the marginal cost to them of refilling that nothing. is nothing. Yeah, of putting a lid on it. Again, nothing. The added value of, you know, having a taste of that in the home. So bring down the price a little. But, you know, extend the movie experience to the home. And then people who didn't go to the cinema who munched near popcorn is like, hmm, yeah, I miss movie popcorn. And how Can I tell you something? So listening to all of the, the earnings calls, whether it's Cinemark or AMC or Cineworld, you know, you, 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 you listen to them and, and you talk to exhibitors, as I know you do, Patrick, I do, uh, on a weekly basis. And they all raise their ticket prices. And they all raised their, their concessions prices. And they talk about how customers, at least for now, have not pushed back. Now, I was just in New York over the weekend. And, and West I can Side tell Story you, opened up to $10 million. They didn't push back. They're not going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that might be why. Well, yeah, uh, it's that, a horrible experience. $18. I'm still reeling from that. I'm not even joking. I was like, $18. I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. I know. They're apologizing for the price that they're charging me. It's, well, you know, I, you know, I know that there's a, you know, a lot of talk about inflation and, <laughs> but, you know, restaurants themselves, at, at least here in, in Los Angeles and New York, they've all raised their prices to what seems like, you know what, guys, you're really, this is an exorbitant amount. Yeah. And certainly going to, I mean, I know this is Broadway theaters, but you go get a drink at a Broadway theater. I mean, you may as well just, they may as well be holding a gun to your head and asking you it's for less, a wallet. It's less than $18. I've gotten a drink uh, at a Broadway theater. It, it, I don't get alcohol, punk. So you want to have champagne, that's your own business. <laughs> but how do we know what the experience is like going to a movie theater? You know what it's like in New York and LA and whatever rural capital you go to, Patrick. Uh, I'm in the heartland. I'm in I mean, I'm in Alabama. I go to movies in, in, in Tennessee and Georgia. And when I go to the movies, I've always talked about, hey, this experience is much better now than it used to be. Digital prints. You don't have scratches. You've got decent sound quality, a decent sized screen. However, I went to see Dune 
and I'm pretty convinced they had the bulb turned down low because the dark scenes were really dark and murky. And other movies I've seen people reporting on, they can't understand the dialogue. I think the ads are so loud that the volume is turned down a little bit. This is my suspicion, and that they don't adjust the volume back up again for when the actual feature film turns up because the ads are cranked up. And then, so they have the volume a little lower so the ads aren't knocking you out of your seat. But then the movie yeah. begins and they don't adjust it again at that point to say, well, it needs to be a little louder. We used to have THX going around and saying, these theaters are doing a good job of maintaining picture and sound quality. We're a third party company. Is anything like that happening for the cinemas around this country to test them and go, are they doing a good job? What is the experience like for most people in most of America? Unless they're doing it internally, uh, there's no third-party service. Like I said, there isn't THX. Uh, Sco Kodak Screen Check died long before the Kodak, you know, company died. And you're right. And this is unfortunately a problem. So there was a great newsletter recently by Richard Rushfield, um, who put out an issue of The Ankler, where he looked at what he called the twin plagues and movie dumps assisted suicide. And yes, it's all nice and well in your luxurious coastal zip codes you know, where you can serve Whispering Angel to go with your, you know, deluxe popcorn. But he took an example from a friend um, in semi-rural Kentucky and looked at, you know, what multiplexes look like there. And it's a horror show, you know, 20, 30, you know, 40-year-old carpets and these sad-looking fun zone arcade areas. Seats <laughs> those that are sad, are, yeah. Yes, yes, nothing fun about those arcades. You know, the seats that are just creaking, the water fountains that are pure gross. And, you know, I think... I remember actually when digital cinema got started and Phil Barlow and Bob Lambert, um, rest his memory from Disney, they'd actually been going out and looking at how it is that Disney films are being watched on 35 back then out in the 90s. And they pushed for digital because they knew how horrible the experience was um, for 35 millimeter prints across the country. Now, we've had digital and theoretically, unfortunately, as you pointed out, they can still, you know, cheat on having a dim light and they can get the sound volumes all wrong. And it doesn't improve the carpet and the seating and the overpriced concessions, but something has to be done because what's happening out there in, you know, the non-coastal states isn't a reflection of, you know, not even the best, but what a really, you know, just decent cinema experience could be like these days. Sperling, do major chains do a better job in the U.S. and around the world? Well, uh, I may have relayed the story last week of going to uh, a local theater here, which does not have recliners, and they did the pr they priced it out, and they said it would not pay for me to put in recliners. It's a smaller theater chain, only uh, mostly in in Southern California, and they they are known at least for the in this one area for having great sound and great picture because a lot of the studio executives live in the neighborhood. And I went to see the uh, No Time to Die, week 10, just to prove to studios that people do go see movies <laughs> in the 10th week, which, by the way, I was the only person in the theater, but uh, on a Friday night at 7 o'clock. Uh, however, as I they have this window into their projection room on their big Dolby Atmos uh, screen. And sure enough, they I looked at, I could see the rack of equipment. And right there was a cinema amplifier set to level five. Now, what that means is that every soundtrack, every movie soundtrack is mixed to a reference for cinema amplifiers to be placed on seven. They go up to 10, so one through 10. 
And what happens is somebody comes in and inevitably says, it's too loud within first the first five minutes. What they're listening to is trailers, which right. are mixed very loud. Exactly. And, and so somebody lowers it and they never go back to, to raise it back up to seven for the feature film. Now, also when sound mixers are mixing and the directors are listening to it, the reference inside a mixing room is not the same as a theater with reflections with 200 people in the audience. So it, it does get louder when you have that many speakers pushing air out into the room. And so to answer your question, uh, no, in fact, I don't want to name the, the chain. It was a big chain, which can control all of their cinema audio processors from their headquarters. <laughs> They purposefully set certain theaters to five, which well, they, means that the, the, the audio will begin to sound muffled. Now, when I went to see No Time to Die, the picture was incredibly dark. All yeah. the skin looked gray. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had the problem with No Time to Die as well, that it was very dark in certain scenes. I think NATO should be doing a service for their people, launching an internal system of checks and bring it to people's attention, not to play gotcha, but to say, hey, you're part of NATO, you should be meeting certain standards and B, you're not doing your customers a good job. It's one thing to not be able to afford new carpeting. It's quite another to not have the proper picture and sound. That just seems unacceptable to me. But when we're talking about picture, one thing I'd never heard about is LED screens. And there are about 50 LED screens around the world. But when we were talking about China and its five-year plan to jump from about, was it 70 or 80,000 screens? They want to hit 100,000 screens within about five years. And a bunch of them, about 1,200 of them, so a little over 1% ultimately, but still 1,200 screens will be LED screens. I was like, what's going on here? I've never even heard of this. Is LED screen, is that the wave of the future, Patrick? Well, Sperling was there, I think, at CinemaCon when they launched the first cinema LED, which was by Samsung. I think the first year was invitation only. Second year, uh, Sony was on the scene as well. And now you've got about four or five different companies offering it. And um, Sperling, you went to see it. I mean, how did you think it looked compared to uh, standard cinema? Well, there's a couple. Uh, so Sony and Samsung launched the same year. Sony invited everybody in. They didn't care who came and saw it. And Sony's looked Absolutely amazing. Uh, they were showing something that I suggested they stop showing, which was the Ang Lee uh, oh, halftime. Will Smith. Uh, was it? <clears throat> no, no, it wasn't the Will Smith. Oh, one. it was Billy the, Flynn's la halftime walk. Long halftime. Yeah, yeah, and it and that was shot at high frame rate, so it just looked bad in general. <laughs> but the stuff that wasn't high frame rate looked amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I remember they, they showed it to everybody at, uh, inter-society. Were you at this Patrick when they did it? I saw the Vegas demonstration of the Sony, um, LED and it looked spectacular. Like, right. And it's also spectacularly expensive. What's yes. the cost of it compared to a regular <laughs> screen? How much more expensive? Ooh. 10 times, well, 15 times. It's it's the combination cost of a screen and a projector, but even then, when you put the two together, put it this way, it's a magnitude more. It's more expensive than an IMAX uh, projector, probably, but you can't light up a screen as big because guess what? They're built out of modules, so tiles, and this is why in the U.S. recently, or up until recently, they kind of targeted them at dine-in cinemas, so because it's a premium experience and guess what people like having um a bright way to watch their food 
if it's not yeah, overpriced right. popcorn. So you get a they bonus. They want to see what there. they're eating. Yeah, exactly. So it kind of stalled at that. But as you said, now that China has decided they want to have 20,000 more screens within just three years and they can make it part of their, you know, 14th five year plan. Then guess what? They they can mandate the fact that well, two percent of all new screens are going to be cinema LED, and one percent of all the old eighty thousand screens going to be cinema LED. And by the way, this is the only uh, Hollywood approved uh, technology for displaying first run films that we manufacture here in China. Digital projectors are made by foreign companies, so as much as you know they can set up factories, they're still seen as an import. Whereas with cinema LED. It's one of the providers is, and there will be more, is a Chinese cinema LED manufacturer. So it actually benefits the domestic industry. So, so this is really the future of cinema screens in China. It's not necessarily or at all going to take over the rest of the world. There's not enough of an advantage to pay no, that it's, much more it's, money. It is a niche, and it's. It, I'm reminded of um, how the early description of digital cinema itself was, which was, this is a solution in search of a problem. Right. And that's what cinema you LED know, is. So the only problem it solved so far is how to have well-lit sliders presented to you at the Alamo Draft House. <laughs> well, and I will say, I, I went to see uh, a, an LED screen a, in Houston uh, at the uh, the. Uh, Wow, why can't I remember the name? Star Cinema Grill. I couldn't remember the name of the, uh, which ironically, as you as you mentioned, uh, Patrick is a dine-in cinema, and it looked fantastic. And the difference is, it actually sounded fantastic. One of the drawbacks, again, is the sound because the speakers are put behind the screen. Oh, right. And and then of course they they transmit audio through the screen when it's a normal screen, and it sounds like people on screen are talking. The problem with LED is you cannot place speakers behind the screen. So they had to figure out a way to bounce the audio off the screen. And of course, with that, there is a slight delay. And your brain initially picks that up mm. after about 10 or 15 minutes. Not actually, not even that long. After about five minutes, your brain kind of allows that to get fuzzy and you don't, you don't. That would drive it. me nuts the entire movie. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, you, know, you know, I love the Be I love the Beatles film Get Back. It was great. It, it's absolutely uh, utterly absorbing. I love the Beatles, so take a grain of salt. But I, I couldn't. I loved it. Um, but he does a lot of stuff where he uses audio at certain points and pairs it with video that doesn't match the audio because they have audio and they have video, and it works just fine. They they had to do it. They needed this audio and they wanted a way to use it. Sometimes they did montages. Sometimes they matched it with video. But I noticed it every time. I think most people may not. But I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I see what they're doing there. But they needed this audio, and I understand why. And then they move on. But every time it happened, I was like, oh, what? Uh, uh, oh, oh, okay, I know what's happening. So I don't think I don't know how much I would adjust to that. But it's super expensive. It doesn't have a huge advantage. It looks great, fine, but it's not exactly. Oh, it looks amazing, right? And, and, and the, sure, the dynamic uh, range is is pretty spectacular. It looks right, but it looks so fantastic. For the cost of an IMAX screen, you can have it in your in your 100 seater room. So, there you go. That's going to they're going to charge a lot for dinner. <laughs> so, I, I love reading all, I loved reading all that stuff on uh, the marquee, Patrick. I look forward to You've got a story coming out this week on LED screens, don't you? Yes, definitely keep an eye out for it. Now you have to because you said you would. <laughs> so, and and if it. you want to subscribe to the marquee, uh, you just go to celluloidjunkie.com. There's a, a place right on the front page to subscribe. And if you want to watch the CJ Cinema Summit, it's cjcinemasummit.com and you can uh, register for the next one. It's free. Sweet. 
Thank you very much for having me on, guys. Thank you. Well, that was great of Patrick to come on by. It's always fun to hear what he's talking about at Celluloid Junkie and in The Marquee, his newsletter. Yeah, you know, we hope to have one uh, that focuses on distribution as well at some point, and uh, maybe we'll have to have others. Uh, you know, if you if you have any thoughts on that, let us know. You can write to us. You can email us. Uh, we should have a newsletter. What do you think, Michael? Do a newsletter? I, I think the podcast is plenty. <laughs> Enough work? Enough work for you? I don't know what to do with all the money. That's the problem. The, all the money that pours in. I'm like, where do I put it? I just, I just don't know where to put it. I feel a Usually little bit like right. Michael Nesmith after his mom left him her fortune from liquid paper. Yes. Now, actually, that's, this was always the thing. I knew about this back in the 80s when uh, I was just discovering the monkeys, even though they'd been around since, what, the 60s? Yep. yep. Uh, this was, the, this is, was BTS in the 60s, basically. Uh, all right sure uh well they, they yeah i guess bts was put together too i don't know was there an ad or how did they get together i don't know this was a prefab four. michael nesmith of the monkeys died this week at 78 and the band was called the prefab four because they were put together by guys who wanted to make a tv show they watched a hard day's night cool hippie guys bob rafelson you know they were making great movies and they said we should make a TV show. We could do that. We could make a weekly show. So they put together their own band with guys, and they weren't even expected to play their instruments or do much or whatever. They wanted them to know something about music, but they just put them together, and the show was a massive hit for two years. The band had the best writers in the industry from the Brill Building turning out great hits like I'm a Believer and uh, Stepping Stone and Last Train to Clarksville, and they just had a great run of hits. And then the guys in the band were like, we want to write our own songs and play our own instruments. And they're like, what? No, shut up. <laughs> but they took more and more control over their creative end. And they really, their albums got better and better. They always had great singles, but they became a really good band. And in fact, their most recent studio album, not a Christmas album, that may be the best album they did. It was one of the best albums of the year. So they have a weird, crazy run, a fake band that became a real band that really grew to have a lot of respect over the years, but it took a long time. And Michael Nesmith took a long time to embrace the band's legacy as well. But when the band broke up, he forged ahead into country rock with a group called the First National Band. Lots of great reviews, three albums, but they never quite clicked. But they were there along with Graham Parsons and the Birds and Ricky Nelson crafting that new sound. And they faded just as the Eagles became big. But it didn't matter to Michael, did it? Because like you said, his mom invented liquid paper. And when she died, out. he... Wait out. I, believe it was liquid paper, but look it up. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Liquid paper uh, is whiteout. Well, there's two different brands. Whiteout is a different brand, I think. Um, but uh, no. maybe I'm wrong about that. I think they're both trademark names. But when she died, he received the bulk of her fortune. And he invested in all sorts of stuff like businesses and movies like Repo Man. He was always the quiet monkey, the smart monkey, the interesting monkey. And he also kind of sort of helped invent MTV. He saw he was creating music videos and he said, hey, there's no outlet for this. And so he created the show Pop Clips for Nickelodeon back in 1979. And then he sold the concept to Warner Brothers, which ultimately turned it into MTV. He says, look, I don't get the credit. It was a lot of different people had the same idea at the same time. It was a convergence of ideas. No one person really deserved the credit. But if you were going to, I think the guy who invented the TV show Pop Clips for a cable channel probably deserves it. <laughs> so you know, that's Michael mm -hmm. Nesmith uh, used to uh, have an office down the street from... Uh, an office I was working in on Sunset Boulevard. It was uh, I was at the time working for Nicolas Cage and his production mm -hmm. company in Nesmith's uh, office was down the street. And I always used to see him uh, walking down the street. And I have to say, he got the funniest looks from uh, e everyone he met. Really? Okay. 
<laughs> I get it. That's, I get it. Yeah. Here yeah, we yeah, come yeah. walking down the street. Yeah. We get the yeah, funny yeah, book yeah. from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. He won People the first monkey Grammy. around. He won the first Grammy for best video with his long form music video called Elephant Parts. A monkey won a Grammy. He turned that idea into the innovative TV series Television Parts, which was a very Ernie Kovacs like affair. He was the first person to put a barcode onto an LP. And he died. Just about three weeks after their last tour, he and Mickey Dolenz went out on tour. Michael Nesmith made full peace with the monkey's legacy. He sort of resisted it and thought it was dumb and whatever, but he finally got it, embraced it, loved it, gave back to the fans, said, I, I'm, I'm so happy you enjoyed the music and I do too now. And he got stronger and stronger as the tour went on. It was really kind of moving. At the beginning of the tour, he couldn't even get out on stage on his own and he had to sit down. By the end of the tour, he was like walking on stage and standing on his feet for the whole show. It gave him like a second life. And then, but that was it. He died just a few weeks later. So I see that, a movie. I see it, a movie or at a least very, a TV series. A very sweet a ending. A number of yeah. other people died, including critic Greg Tate of The Village Voice. He died at 64, awfully young. He really helped elevate graffiti and hip hop so that they would be taken seriously. He's a major, major talent in terms of criticism. Horror novelist Anne Rice died at the age of 80, right where she should, New Orleans. <laughs> That's the town that was already famous for crazy, spooky goings-on. But of course, her most famous book, Interview with the Vampire, was the first of a string of novels set in the world of the anti-hero vampire Lestat. And there's two TV series being made out of her books, one based on Interview with the Vampire and the other on um, Witches. Um, but she sold 150 million copies and no word yet on when she'll be rising from the grave. Yeah, uh, here's the thing. Obviously, not bitten by a vampire. <laughs> um, uh, very sadly, uh, that first book was inspired in part by the death of her daughter. Her daughter died from leukemia and she was very young. And a key character in that novel is a child vampire, Claudia. In a way, she sort of brought her daughter back to life by creating that character, not wanting to let go wanting her to live you know, forever. And so that's kind of a mournful and sad, but interesting how that can inspire and create a, a vibrant life. Uh, another Grammy winner, just like Michael Nesmith, producer and bassist and Grammy winner, Robbie Shakespeare of the reggae legend Sly and Robbie died at 68. Huge producers. They work with U2, Madonna, Bob Dylan, Sting, Cyndi Lauper, you name it. Huge players in reggae. They played with everybody. They produced a lot of people. They created a distinctive sound. They are just major, major figures. Rolling Stone named Robbie Shakespeare one of the 20 greatest bassists in music history. And now we're going to get to somebody you know about, Mexican music legend Vicente Fernandez, who died at the age of 81. He is a legend in Mexico's ranchera genre. He died and Billboard said no other voice of traditional Mexican music has been as successful or recognizable. They named him the fifth most successful Latin singer in history. He's toured constantly. He appeared in dozens of movies. He won three Grammys. He sold more than 50 million albums. Check out his signature song, El Rey, or we've got a link to a clip where he performs on the Latin Grammys as recently as 2019 with his son, a big star in his own right, Alejandro Fernandez, and his grandson, Alex, who was just launching his career in 2019. But you have some insight into Fernandez's career. Well, you know, a lot of people look at pictures of him and go, oh, he's a mariachi singer. Uh, right. No, he dresses like a mariachi singer, meaning he dresses in traditional, you know, that kind of Mexican ranchera style. Okay. But it is not at all uh, mariachi music. Now it sounds because it has that kind of, uh, that kind of 
uh, brass section, uh, but it's a very more ballady. It has a little bit more ballad, uh, like tone to it. Uh, and so I, I was at, at the airport yesterday, found out he died. I said, Oh, wow, who, it, who is he? I, I happen to like, uh, you know, being a trumpet player, like some mariachi music. I, I wanted to listen to it. So I downloaded three or four of his albums at the airport and listened to them on the flight home. Now, could I do that in a world where I only had access to CDs? No, I could not. And, and that is the benefit to... Absolutely. You can instantly say, I want to check that out. And there's no barrier. You don't have to say, well, do I want to spend $15 on his greatest hits? And which album do I buy? You can immediately go and check something out. So that is great. And it, it means it's a little overwhelming because there's so much available. But when you hear something like Fernandez dying and you say, oh, check it out. It's so easy to do. And that's really great. And what he's wearing is a charro outfit. It's, a, it's sort of the, the clothing typical of a horseman, though. They're very dressy and nice when they're on stage. The tight pants and the jacket is sort of what horsemen would wear, or at least when they want to dress up and go on parade. And that's used, of course, by uh, chariada participants, mariachi performers, and, and all sorts of celebrations and festivals. I think it's called a charro. Um, so uh, that's the garb that he is wearing. Uh, but that's, that's a, a cool, fascinating career. Did you like the music when you listened to it? Yes, it's actually very good. And, you know, I could see why he had such a long career. No doubt. He very, very good. Also, Dine was the great director, Lena Wertmuller. She died at the age of 93, the first woman to be nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards. That was for her film, Seven Beauties. She began as an assistant on Fellini's Eight and a Half, and he became a mentor. That same year, she made her directorial debut. This woman was not messing around. More power to her. The 70s were definitely her creative heyday. She had major films like The Seduction of Mimi, Swept Away, and of course, Seven Beauties. And we just got news about a, a Broadway legend, Tony-winning producer Leonard Soloway also has died at the age of 93. There's a fun documentary about him. He's a great guy. He was a manager on a million shows and a producer on stuff like, you know, The Beauty Queen of Linane and Dame Edna and Laughter on the 23rd Floor. But uh, he had a great long career and there is a very fun documentary about him. Some people said he's as entertaining as any performer he ever worked with. <laughs> you know, like the guy, is, uh, the guy is definitely a card. So that's worth checking out. So is our show. Yes. In fact, uh, could you imagine, though, being Lena Wertmuller kind of working with Fellini on eight and a half and going, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't even have an ending to his. He doesn't even have a story. He has no ending <laughs> to this movie. I could do this. Uh, thus, the story of eight and a half, by the way. Uh, so in any case, yes, you should be listening to us and subscribing to us. You can, in fact, do that at any podcast aggregator, including iTunes, Microsoft Marketplace, Google Podcast Store, Stitcher, Spotify. Please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do. You can find that information as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as links to Patrick Vosikovsky's work. And by the way, thank you, Patrick, for joining us. All of that information can be found on showbizsandbox.com. That's our website. That's where you'll find ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. And when will they go back out on tour? When will they release their next album? Okay, that part isn't a part of their website, but I, I do wonder when their next album is coming out. In any case, Michael Gill to the website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? 
This week it's it takes two.com. Because it takes two of us to do our show, and it is sadly already taken. So unless you want some cards or, you know, don't bother. (laughs) (laughs) You want some stationery or you want a scrapbook, that's the place to go. Okay, well, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that website, why not head on over to Michael Giltz? (laughs) You can head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, possibly, play nice. Maybe? Yeah, all right. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe.